So good to be with you tonight. I always appreciate very much the invitation to be at White Oak, no matter in what capacity I'm able to be here. Uh, Jim mentioned uh, I grew up here, my family did, and um, it's uh, it's always uh, like coming home when I'm at White Oak. I appreciate it a great deal. Uh, I've told people over the years, uh, I am what I am primarily because of the influence of about four or five distinct men in my life, and uh, certainly my father uh, be the greatest influence uh, as far as a male figure is concerned, a Christian man, but outside of that, I can't think of anybody that had more influence on who I am as a person than J.C., and uh, I always appreciate getting to be back here and to be with uh, J.C. and Ann and the rest of uh, you. Uh, a lot of you have known me longer than I've known you, and I appreciate that, and uh, and so um, it's just always good to be back, and of course, uh, it's been really good over the last several years to get to know Jim a lot better than uh, we had in time past. We'd passed each other on the way here and there, and uh, just him preaching somewhere or being at a lectureship or being in a gospel meeting and, and uh, say hi to each other and really get acquainted with each other. But since uh, him moving to this area and being acquainted with GBN, uh, it's been a real pleasure to get to know him a lot better. And uh, looking forward to working on the Good News Today uh, segments, and uh, hopefully that will turn out uh, very well. Let me begin tonight with a story. It's not going to be the substance of our lesson tonight. It's based on true events, but I want to use it as an illustration. And I'm going to change the names to protect the identities of the parties who are involved. But there was a married couple by the name of Bill and Jan, and they had been married for somewhere in the neighborhood of 22 years. And really the first half of their marriage, about the first 10, 12, 15 years of their marriage, were very, very good years. But beginning about the 18th, 19th year, there was some stress in the relationship, and Jan began to notice in Bill a distinct change in his behavior. She had noticed it in some of the years leading up to this, but she had never been able to quite put her finger on what the cause of it was. For example, some of the odd behavior included when the children were storing up money in their piggy banks, one day that money just ended up gone. And when Jan came home one evening from work and the kids were crying because they weren't exactly sure what had happened to their money, Bill explained that he thought it would be better for them to invest that money to put it in the bank and so he had just taken it and put it there. And he forgot to tell them and ask their permission, certainly didn't ask her, but that's where it was and not to worry about it. And then one evening, Jan was going through and making some spring cleaning of some of the drawers in the house, especially upstairs where their bedroom was, and she noticed that some of his prized jewelry was missing. And it included a watch, it included a few of the rings like a class ring that he had that he valued and prized and wore every single day of his life. And he just happened to mention that when she said something to him that he had lost those several weeks ago and he forgot to tell her and not to worry about it. One evening, Bill had been in business meetings, so she thought, and he came home and he was about bludgeoned to death. Uh, he was very dirty, his clothes were rattled and torn, he had scuff marks all over his face, there were gashes on his head, and he was crying and he said, I've been attacked, I was mugged, and the car was stolen. And she said, well, honey, that's okay. We can get a new car, you're safe, that's fine. 
And so he said, well, yeah, it'll be okay. I just, I want you to know what happened to the car. And she said, well, at least you're okay. And so we'll make do. It wasn't until about three weeks later when some people came knocking on the house to reclaim the house for failure to pay mortgage payments that she realized that there was a much deeper problem than Bill had been letting on. He was a gambling addict. The money from the piggy bank had never been put in the actual bank. He stole it from the children and lost it on the blackjack table. All of those jewelry pieces that he said that he had lost some time ago, the watch, the ring, all those things that he valued and prized, they'd been stolen. And as they had been sold, the money had been used in the roulette table, but it had been lost. The car that he said had been stolen was not stolen at all. It had just been repossessed. And he was so afraid to tell her that he was so addicted to gambling that in his horror of what she might say, Bill incessantly beat his head against a brick wall, tore his clothing, and rolled in the ground to make it seem as though he had been mugged. And of course the house had really genuinely been repossessed by the bank because money that should have been going to pay the mortgage payment and invested in other things had been going to gambling. It is a very real problem. And so in your quest for understanding Bible ethics, it's good that you've dedicated at least one night to be able to discuss a very, very serious problem facing our society. I want to do several things tonight. It's a very deep subject. There are many ways in which we could have approached the subject of gambling. And we, for instance, because... Uh, the lottery. We could have just spent all of our time tonight talking about the lies that are told to us about the lottery, and we could have spent our time doing that. But what I want to do tonight is to give you some Bible principles that you can apply to every situation of gambling, whether it's the lottery or whether you're talking about going to Vegas or something along those lines. I hope these principles will be extremely valuable to you. And so I want to begin tonight by illustrating, first of all, that this is not a brand new phenomenon. There's some people who say, well, you know, gambling is of such recent vintage that you really can't read anything about it in the Bible. And we're going to address that in just a moment to show you that there are valid principles from the Bible that you can genuinely apply. But it really isn't true to say that gambling is just some sort of a recent phenomenon. For example, if you go back and you go to about 18th century Egypt, there were a number of people that were known to use knuckle bones and they would, if they were, especially if they were cubed in shape, would write numbers on the sides of the cubes of the knuckle bones and they would throw those knuckle bones and, and uh, they would bet on uh, the way that those knuckle bones would fall on the tables. And still, in many Asian countries, knuckle bones are a way that gambling takes place. Uh, in many countries, like Babylon, ancient Babylon, uh, they would take headless arrows, and for some reason, those headless arrows presented immense value to the people of that culture, and so they would take those headless hours, uh, uh, arrows, and they would bid uh, on certain uh, number of arrows, and they would bet against that, and so uh, it's not something of recent vintage. Uh, many people in island countries would take coconuts and uh, they would do something like the shell game and they would bet on that. Uh, many people would take the coconuts and they would shell the coconut and they would make something like a roulette uh, wheel inside the coconut and bet on that. So it's not simply fair to say, well, it isn't since Vegas that we really have the problem of gambling. It's been around for quite some time. Uh, someone came along much later and uh, they figured out that if they uh, were to fashion six sides of, uh, of a cube, they could make dice and put numbers on it. In fact, 
they based that on the Greek word cuboid that means cube, and they take those six sides and thought uh, that'd be a great way to make a game, and so on and on it goes, but it's certainly not a modern phenomenon, and so dice are certainly used uh, in that regard. So it's not a modern phenomenon, it's something that's uh, certainly uh, not of recent vintage, and it is an extremely sensitive subject, and I'll tell you why. When you talk about something that affects the pocketbook of men and women, you're talking about, about a very emotive, very sensitive uh, subject indeed. Uh, in fact, let me give you a, a few scriptures that might go along with this. Consider this. Uh, in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, uh, let me go back here. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 10. And uh, let's, uh, let's begin our thoughts in Scripture with this tonight. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. Uh, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 and says, For the love of money is the root of all evil. Literally, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, which while some have coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And then you think about Galatians 4.16 when Paul says, If I tell you the truth, have I become your enemy? And when you combine those two passages, I don't know, again, of a single thing that more people become complexed or angry over than any subject that directly involves their love of money. And I've put the example of Acts 16 there. Uh, you know the example. Paul and his traveling companions go into the cities, and one of the things that they are able to do is to destroy, basically overturn the work of the idol makers in the city. And those men whose profits were ruined by the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions were not... Um, uh, angered in a small way, they were angered in a very large way because it had affected their pocketbook. Now listen, uh, in history we know that men have been murdered because of money and if men would murder because of money, they will do much less. In Matthew 5, there's a principle where Jesus warns the Pharisees who had in mind that as long as you don't commit physical murder, anything less than that is okay. And he warns that it would be wrong even to call a man raka or a fool as a result of that in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus is making clear that really murder is still part of the same process of hate and anger and even maybe verbal persecution. And if a man would be willing to physically harm someone because of money, even murder someone because of money, then expect if you address a subject like gambling, you may have some verbal backlash. And we don't want that to be the case. We want men and women to be honest enough with the Bible that that wouldn't be the case. But you can expect that people are going to be very angry if you talk about something that they're using sometimes as their primary investment vehicle. And that's the way some people use gambling. Uh, as we look at this subject of gambling, uh, I want us to first of all, before we move into any consideration about some of the components of it, I want you to... First of all, ask yourself exactly how do you discern in these matters. And you know, when it comes to a lot of ethical issues, you may have already noticed in your summer series that much of the way the Bible addresses uh, an ethical issue, especially one uh, that has uh, modern changes to it, is by Bible principles. Sometimes people will say, can you show me a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not gamble? No, but I can show you Bible principles that address the subject. I can show you where God has spoken through implication. And when you have Bible principle and when you have Bible implication, that principle, that implication, is every bit as binding as if God had said, Thou shalt or thou shalt not do this. Now, 
One thing that will be needed in a study of gambling, whether you're talking about the lottery or the roulette table or whether you're talking about playing cards and betting on the outcome of cards with you know, any kind of monetary investment is honesty. You're going to have to have that because there are too many people that approach the subject honestly and really some people approach the subject and say, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do it anyway. And that cannot be what our attitude is in this regard. Before we start, uh, I want you to turn your Bible very quickly to Jeremiah 44. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible regarding pseudo-standards to which we sometimes appeal to justify activity. I want you to look at Jeremiah 44. Listen to verse 15 beginning. Jeremiah 44, look at verse 15. Then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods, and all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt, and Pathros answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us, in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. Now stop there. You'll notice in verse 16 that when he says, Jeremiah had been speaking in the name of the Lord. That means by God's authority. He had been speaking a truthful message and the people say, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Notice the very first word of verse 17. But. That's a contrast. So here the people have said, we are so tired of you telling us what God says. Now let us tell you what we're going to use as a standard of authority. So notice verse 17. But we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth. That's called personal preference. When it comes to any issue where we seek a Bible answer, personal preference is not the standard. I could no more justify murder because I like to do it than I could justify gambling or any other thing. Here the people are pleading for idolatry simply because they like to do it. Personal preference cannot be our standard. Notice to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, to pour out drink offerings unto her. Notice the verb tense. As we have done. That's a past practice. Have you ever known someone to try to justify something they've done on the basis that that's what they've always done? What we've always done may not be right. And so the only way that we know to do what is right or what is right, we go to the Bible to find out. Notice it says, we and our fathers. Maybe somebody says, yes, but you don't understand. We have a long line of gamblers in my family. My granddaddy was a gambler. My grandfather was a gambler. My dad was a gambler, and so am I. Well, it doesn't matter what my mom and dad have done. I've got to make sure it's what the Bible says. Notice it says, our kings, our princes. Now it's talking about prominent people. Just because I can turn on my television set and find a very popular show devoted to gambling where very famous people are gambling does not mean because those famous people are doing it makes it right. Notice, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, this is something that had gained in popularity. Now they're appealing to idolatry, but the same would apply to gambling or any other subject that we need to find Bible answers for. Then, verse 17, notice it says, For then we have plenty of victuals or bread. You know, somebody says, Look, you, you do not understand that by gambling I have become uh, very enriched. It's a very lucrative process for me. And in reality, it's not for... Most people, really the majority of people it isn't, but still it doesn't make it right even if we were to gain a lot of money from it. 
And it's interesting down in verse 19, the women chime in and say, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our men? The women basically say, well, Jeremiah, you don't understand. The men gave us the permission to do idolatry. Still, that doesn't make it right, even if we have permission from someone else to do it. So as we approach a very sensitive subject like gambling, we say, let's make sure that our standard is the Word of God. In fact, that's what Jeremiah lists in verse 23. We talk about the voice of the Lord and walking in His law and statutes and testimonies. So the only real guide in a matter like this is to go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say in regard to gambling? So let's break it down tonight. I want to do three things with you tonight. First of all, I want to look at what God does approve. I want to make sure that we understand that there are some legitimate ways of gaining. There are legitimate uh, ways in which God explains the gaining of money. And we'll look at some of those. And uh, hopefully by the end of that, you'll see there's a huge contrast in what God authorizes and what He abhors. We're going to look at that secondarily. And then finally, we'll offer some answers for those who may be involved in gambling and who may have addiction to that. Notice, first of all, when it comes to gambling, some things are not gambling. Now, generally, these are the things where somebody will say, yes, it's just as right to play money on the lotto as it is to farm or invest money or put money in a bank or something along those lines. So let me give you a few categories that sometimes are appealed to that genuinely are not forms of gambling. First of all, casting lots is not gambling. And I'll show you a few reasons why that's the case. Uh, do you remember in Acts chapter 1, when Judas had hanged himself, that they were searching for someone to fill his spot. And notice they cast lots, and remember the lot fell upon Matthias, and Matthias took the place of Judas so that the number was twelve again, and those twelve were then present on Pentecost and preached the gospel. And so some people say, well, you know, if the apostles can cast lots, if they can take something like knuckle bones and throw those knuckle bones on the floor and they can try to make some decision based on that, then surely we could put money down on the same thing and do the same thing. But that's not really true. Because I want you to turn in your Bible to Proverbs chapter 16 and I'll show you how the Bible answers the issue of casting lots. Look at Proverbs chapter 16. In verse 33, the Bible says the lot is cast into the lap but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. When in Acts 1 they cast lots, that was simply a way in which the Lord was making His will known. In the Old Testament, when lots were cast among men of the nation of Israel, that was simply a physical way in which the will of the Lord was made known to men. Now, it's true that other nations, other pagan nations, cast lot without divine assistance, without any providential help of the Lord. But when it comes to the children of God, their casting of lots was a way in which God's will was being made known to those people. God superintended the choice that was being made. And so it's not fair to say that that is a form of gambling because really that was a form of revelation. So casting lots is not gambling. Neither is farming. I've heard some people say, well, you know what, it's, you, you might as well farm if you're going to put money down on the roulette table or vice versa because farming is just exactly the same, although we have some Bible principles that show us that farming and any other kind of genuine, noble, honorable pursuit like that is authorized by the Bible. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the Bible tells us that if a man won't work, he neither should eat. And you can go back in Genesis 3 where God told Adam and even those that followed after him to till the ground and by the sweat of his face he should be able to earn. And so even Jesus who used many agricultural principles shows that farming is a valid profession. Uh, obviously, there are 
inherent risks in everything that we do in life. But you're going to see in just a moment, there's a big difference in something that has inherent risk. Just walking at your door, you take inherent risks of life versus the artificially created risks of gambling. Farming is not gambling. Neither are investments. You know, some people say, well, you know, you put your money in the stock market or in a bank and that's just, that's just exactly like gambling. But that's not really true uh, because Jesus himself used the principle of investment in Matthew 25. Do you remember you have three men who are given talents, who are given sums of money. One doesn't do anything with his money at all. He buries it. The other two make investments on their money and there are returns and Jesus approves of their having invested of their talents and gaining interest off of that. And so the, the validity of investing is certainly presented there. Listen, uh, Business is what makes at least the economic world go round. And when you make an investment, you become a partner in that business. It's a way of growing the economy. And so investment is certainly not a form of gambling. Neither is insurance. I want you to do this the next time. Uh, you see someone in an automobile accident, or perhaps you're in one, and the policeman comes up and he says, uh, I see that there's been a, an accident. You rear-ended this person. Uh, what do you think the cause of that was? And you say, I had insurance. Well, insurance doesn't. Actually, doesn't insurance lessen the risk of those things? Isn't it designed to absorb some of the risk? It's, to, it's designed to offset risk instead of cause it. And so insurance is not gambling, even though some people think that it is. Now, uh, you may think that your premiums are a ripoff, and maybe you're gambling when you, uh, you know, in a maybe a jovial sense when you invest in such high premiums, but insurance is not a form of gambling. In fact, the principle is presented in James chapter 4 that while we dare not make plans without God in the picture, making plans is proper. Now obviously we're not to be anxious for the things of tomorrow because there's enough evil in tomorrow to be anxious about the things of today according to Matthew 6. But the point of James 4 is that when we're making plans which are not condemned, we just make sure that God is a part of the planning process. Even in 3 John 2 where Gaius is listed, Gaius is a man who is said to be prospering spiritually and John wishes that Gaius would prosper both financially and physically and that the spiritual prosperity would be the barometer of both of those other additional areas of growth. Inasmuch as we are able to grow spiritually, there's nothing wrong with growing fiscally or even physically. Now, God tells us that there are some legitimate ways in which we can gain money. For example, one might be that we earn the money. And in generally speaking in the Bible, the Bible mostly speaks of our going out and earning by the sweat of our face the money that we would use to put food on our table and invest in other things that we've just talked about. In Matthew 20, there's a parable. I'm summarizing a lot for time's sake tonight. Matthew 20, there's a parable where the laborer, uh, the master of the field, goes out very early in the morning. He goes out at the first hour of the morning, 6 a.m. He grabs laborers for his field. They agree to a penny a day. And remember, he goes back out at various hours of the day. And at the end of the day, even the 11th hour employees receive the denarius. They receive the penny because that's what had been agreed upon. But even though that parable is, is teaching something about its service, not seniority, that matters in the kingdom of God, a principle is presented that when you go out and you invest hard work in something that you are legitimately owed an income as a result of that. The labor is worthy of his hire, the Bible tells us. So you can go out and you can earn money. Sometimes money might be a gift. 
In Proverbs chapter 17 and in verse 8, the Bible says, A gift is as a precious stone in the eyes of him that hath it. Whithersoever it turneth, it prospereth. So sometimes somebody may come to you and say, I'd like to give you a gift of this. Maybe inheritance is a part of that. You receive some gift from somebody and money is a part of that. The Bible doesn't deny that that's a valid form of gain. Maybe you find money. Uh, maybe it's like the parable in Matthew 13. A man goes out and he finds a great treasure in the field. There's no, as far as he's able to discern, no owner of it. So he goes and buys the field so that he can possess the treasure. Uh, you go out and maybe you find a dollar bill on the ground. Maybe somebody has uh, dropped something and there's no way that you could ever identify the owner of it. And so maybe you find it. And so those forms are presented in the Bible. But now watch this. If money is not earned, if it is not given as a gift, if it is not found, it has to be stolen. There's no other option for that. And so what you're going to find is that this last category most directly applies to gambling because in gambling, the money that is gained, if it is gained, statistically it's almost impossible to gain money in gambling, but if it's gained, it's not earned. There's no investment on your part to, to gain it or mine, and it's certainly not found. It's not as though somebody just left that money on the roulette table. It's there because someone put it there. So it belongs to someone else, and certainly it's not a gift. The people that are betting against you aren't giving it to you. They want to take yours just as much as you want to take theirs. And so when you think about money not earned and not uh, you know, a gift or somewhere falling in the lines of, of not being um, something that, uh, that comes about in the, the natural scriptural means, then, it, then it's stolen. That's going to play into the definition of gambling uh, in just a moment. Then there are some principles of stewardship to consider. For example, in the Bible, we learn that everything belongs to God. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Psalm 50 where there's a, a use of numerology to emphasize just exactly how much does belong to God. And he even talks about in Psalm 50 how that the cattle of a thousand hills belong to the Lord. Now that does not mean that on the thousand and first hill that the cattle doesn't belong to the Lord. It's a way of overemphasizing the fact that everything belongs to God. Everything does. The money that you could pull out of your wallet tonight, you say, okay, I'm going to take some money out of my wallet. That money legitimately belongs to God. It's His. Everything that is upon this earth belongs to God. All these resources that He's given us, those belong to God. And so our stewardship begins with that. We are merely managers. That's what the word stewardship means. We simply manage what God allows us to use. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul talks about being good stewards. And that's what we ought to be. Now I know that in 1 Corinthians 4, most naturally he has in mind that we ought to be good managers spiritually of those things, but the principle would apply across the board even to financial matters. Also, when we have been entrusted with such great responsibility to manage what God has given us, then we must ensure that what we use is used for the glory of God. And there's no way to do that except to allow him to tell us how that is to be done. I think this is a great uh, passage, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Uh, Solomon comes to the end of his journey. He says, uh, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Now listen, what he's doing is describing the very essence of the Christian's worldview. 
Everything that we do in life revolves around fearing God and keeping His commandments. Now, most people, their, their worldview is divided up like pieces of a pie. And they say, well, here's my religion over here and it's separate and doesn't touch any other part of And my politics is over here and, and that's the way it works. The, the Christian's worldview is fear God and keep His commandments and that affects every area of life. Even the way we handle money. Because the money that we have is not really ours. It belongs to the Lord and we use it then for His glory. Also, we're held accountable. Meaning that God expects us to use money, resources, whatever it may be, in the way that we are intended to do it. That is to His glory. In Luke chapter 12, there's a statement made that to whom much is given, much is due. And the idea is where there's great responsibility, there's a great obligation involved in that. And when God entrusts with us the idea of the management of the things of this earth, He expects us to use them right and He judges us accordingly. Also, it is never right to assume that we are the rightful owner of anything upon this earth. Our goal is to only see us, that is, David sees everything that he is able to use. I'm just a manager, a steward of it. It doesn't really rightfully belong to me. And there's a parable in Luke 12 where Jesus begins the parable by stating that a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses and then illustrates it by showing that there's a man who talks about my barns and my houses and these are my goods and he never acknowledges that those belong to God. And it's never right to see yourself as the rightful owner of anything when in reality it belongs to God and we are simply the stewards of it. Which means money put down on a blackjack table, money bedded on a roulette table, money played in the Tennessee lotto, that's money that belongs to God. And what we're going to do in moments say, how does God want that money to be used. And so stewardship is certainly a great consideration. So with those principles in mind, now let's talk about what God abhors. How does gambling contrast to this? Well, let's talk about a few things in this regard. First of all, let's begin with some definitions. And I just drew these. I've had these uh, for some time and I can't give them all to you tonight, but I think these are some of the better definitions that I found. One man says, gambling is a kind of action by which pleasure is obtained at the cost of pain to another. Keep that one in mind because I'm going to read you something that will confirm that in just a moment. It affords no equivalent to the general good. The happiness of the winner implies the misery of the loser. Now you think about that. Let me just, let me just do this as an illustration. Let's say that there's a, a lottery, a raffle of some sort, and uh, it's a dollar entry. And 999,999 other people play. So there's a million people that play and there's a million dollar pot. And it just so happens that your name gets drawn and you say, Boy, I won a million dollars. It also means there are 999,999 losers. And people never think about the fact that the same people who are investing are losing if you win just as you're losing if they win. And so it's not a matter of just saying, boy, I look at what I've gained because anytime there's a winner, it implies the misery of the loser. And so it's certainly a, a grand definition to show us something about the implications of it at least. Here's another one, another two. One man says, we play our own providence with risks that we arrange. Now that's going to be a part of how we define gambling. It's an artificially created risk. It's a risk that we make for ourselves. It's not one of the inherent risks of life. It's a game of chance where the chance has been created by us. For which we use gifts that God has given. That is, we're taking money, resources, anything that belongs to God and chancing them, this artificially created risk for earthly and greedy rewards. And really, as you'll see in just a moment, that's what founds gambling. 
Uh, number three, to play a game for money or property. That's almost a dictionary definition. To bet on an uncertain outcome. To risk by gambling. Here's another one. A simple definition of gambling would be desiring the possession or possessions of another, a prize. The gambler creates a risk, that is, of losing his own possession in an attempt through chance to gain the possession or possessions of another with nothing given in exchange. There's no investment, there's no earning, it's not a gift. And remember, uh, it's not any of those that falls under the category of stealing. One man says, it is connected with gambling, or connected with gambling is the strong element of uncertainty. The large chance of losing. It has been popularly defined as getting something for nothing without rendering service or exchange of goods and is essentially stealing and a form of robbery. It involves taking a risk in order to obtain something for nothing and often means losing what one has and obtaining nothing. Those are all very good definitions. Now, let's see if we can't make some sense of this. First of all, if those definitions are right, then it means that gambling is not a matter of degree. It's a matter of kind. Anything that fits that type of definition, anything that fits that kind of artificially created risk where we're using what God has given us to manage and using it for greedy purposes fits that category. And I say that because some people say, well, look, it's just a small gambling you know, investment. It was only a small card game. It wasn't as though I put... Ten million dollars down on the bet, but anything that fits that kind, like with you know the same, the, it's a categorical thing, just like it is with drinking or any other thing that you're dealing usually in ethical issues. So it's a matter of kind, not degree. It also involves a game of chance. Again, not not the inherent risks of life. You go out and. Uh, it's possible that any of us tonight could be involved in an automobile accident, but it doesn't stop us from driving home. So we assume those risks just from living. This is not the same kind of risk. These are artificial chances. So it's a game of chance. We're taking our own possessions, again, those that really do genuinely belong to God, and we are wagering what we are managing on the part of God, uh, and we're putting that down in that game of chance where we're using that money in a created risk, some artificially created risk, in an attempt to gain someone's possessions with nothing given in return. And I'm going to read you something in just a moment where, you know, in many instances, it's not just a dollar, two dollars, it's someone's paycheck. So by you winning the paycheck, they're out the mortgage payment and things of that sort. And so you're taking, I am what belongs to God, wagering it in a game of chance with artificially created risk to try to get something that belongs to someone else. Now, as you can see, there are certain attitudes that found this kind of action. First of all, selfishness grounds that. It's, it's very difficult for us to say that gambling is not a selfish activity because it very much is. For example, in Matthew 7, verse 12, we're given what we often call the golden rule. Therefore, as you would have men do unto you, do even so unto them. The idea is, whatever I would want somebody to do to me, I would do to them. And of course there we remind ourselves that that's a proactive command. I'm not just to wait for them to do it to me. I go out and do it to others as I would have them do to me. You don't want someone taking your money. You're trying to take theirs. Any more, no more than they want you to take their money. They're trying to take yours. And so uh, as much as I would not want someone to steal my money, uh, I certainly can't do it to them. Romans 13 verse 10 tells us basically the same thing, that our goal is to be honorable toward all men, but that's certainly not what happens in gambling. It's covetousness. Tell me how this idea of I'm going to strike it rich so I don't have to work anymore and do nothing more the rest of my life harmonizes with Hebrews 13 5 
and be content with such things as you have. Now there's a contrast between those two. The Bible says be content with such things as you have for He said I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. The provisions of life is what we ought to be satisfied with unless we're able to gain, of course, in the legitimate ways that God described earlier. It's materialism. It's, it's the attempt to lay up treasures for ourselves upon the earth. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, where it tells us that moth and rust do break through and corrupt, and though it does not do that in heaven, men often exchange that for earthly treasures. And gambling really fits that category altogether. Now, in a sense, we would say gambling is wrong for these reasons. Number one, it violates the principle of stewardship. Uh, you know, there was, a, there was a huge fuss made, and I think rightly so, when the man who was uh, up in New York, what was his name? Uh, not Bernie Madoff, but who was the fellow that was up, that stole all of the investment funds uh, in New York? I can't remember his name right now. Well, you know his name. People were enraged that he used their money in the way that he did. Well, if we're using God's money in the same way, aren't we doing exactly the same thing? Especially when we lose his money and as much as he claimed that he had lost billions of dollars of other people's investments. And so it's the same principle. It violates the principle of stewardship. The money that I have is not really mine. It's someone else's. I manage the money. And so I'm certainly not going to risk someone else's money in those types of investments. It also violates the work ethic that God enjoins for man. If I am able to receive money as a gift or if I can receive it by earning then my goal is not to go out and laugh and take what little I have and try to chance it on the, the, the percentage that I may gain something you know, exponentially more. I'm not supposed to do that. So it violates the work ethic that God enjoins to man. It violates the golden rule, as we've just suggested. It's stealing. And I know somebody says, well, everybody's putting their money in the pot, but it would really be stealing by permission. Uh, it, uh, gambling breeds dishonesty and corruption. In fact, let me uh, just read very quickly a few things to you. Uh, I went through some time back. Uh, the American Family Association will often publish statistics and facts uh, regarding uh, you know, bullets like this. And so uh, a few years ago they published just a, a medley of what was in headlines of national newspapers across the land. And I want you to see if there's not just a, a common theme to all of these. Uh, in the Topeka Capital Journal... Back in 2001, one of the headlines uh, read about a, a, a crime that was committed, and the article says, beginning, An Onega, Kansas man who gambled away millions of dollars is suing the Golden Eagle Casino for failing to give him special prizes he accrued with each pull of the slot machine. Terry Isles, Bates, Topeka, uh, uh, Bates, the Topeka attorney, said Wednesday that his client is a disabled Vietnam veteran who lost more than $3 million in the slots while gambling at the Golden Eagle Casino for three years. So he lost the money, and the crime spree ensued to cover his debt. Uh, an Alabama man, this is from the Clarion Ledger, uh, an Alabama man who shot three people before killing himself at a busy Mississippi Gulf Coast casino was apparently distraught over losing money to a slot machine, a casino employee said. Uh, from the record uh, in New Jersey, the, the Bergen County Beacon, he says, A gambler accused of beating up and trying to rape a woman after blaming his losses on her was arrested at the Atlantic City Casino where the assault allegedly occurred. Uh, in the Associated Press, prosecutors are considering the case of a former Washington State Gambling Commission employee who acknowledged stealing commission money and then gambling it away. The 36-year-old woman admitted to stealing more than $70,000 from the commission. It's interesting because everything that's associated with gambling is not good. It doesn't mean that every single person that does it is that corrupt, but it does mean that that's the kind of fruit that's produced by it. 
It violates the principles of positive influence. In fact, if we can say this, a tree is known by its fruits. Everything that is associated with gambling is about false hope. It's about addiction. Uh, did you know there are more than 5 million gambling addicts in America and they became addicted the very first time they gambled? Uh, there are some people with that proclivity. It's associated with crime, as we've just suggested. It has a negative impact on economy. Shattered homes, as I illustrated at the beginning, are typical of this. And I want to read something to you that I found a few years ago when I was in Knoxville. They published in the Knoxville News Sentinel a very excellent um, piece. I think it was originally in the Tennessean from up in Nashville. But uh, there was a, a, a lady by the name of Sylvia Porter. She was a writer for the Los Angeles Times, and she was syndicated, so she published this in a number of papers. And what she was doing was writing a piece about the lottery. And uh, here's after her investigation, this is what she said about the lottery. She said, those who wager money on state lotteries are often those who can least afford it. A national survey not long ago found that people at poverty level spend an average of 2.1% of their income buying lottery tickets. The lottery is to some their chief investment vehicle. Do you, have you ever met somebody who said, uh, or you begin to talk to them about what plans they're making for the future and they say, I don't really have any, but I'm going to win the lottery and I won't have to work. There are a lot of people who really believe that. Millions upon multiplying millions of people who believe that. She says, viewed as a tax to raise state revenue. See, we get the lie all the time. It benefits education. Uh, state revenues are increased because of this. She says, it is the most regressive of all taxes because the poor actually pay more than the rich, both as percentage of their income and in actual dollars. Nor have lotteries proved to be the big moneymaker states had hoped they would become. It's very, really very sad, and she's quoting from a New York lottery vendor here. He said, uh, this vendor does, he says, I have people come here and spend $25, $50 buying lottery tickets and playing the numbers. The people who do this aren't very well-to-do. They're poor. They can't afford it. Some are on public assistance. You get an occasional guy in a business suit, but he buys one ticket. The ones who buy dozens are the ones who are really desperate. Then she says, during the Pennsylvania State Lottery Frenzy, there, was an excited, uh, there were excited interviews with people who spent $1,000 to $5,000 buying lottery tickets. I'd better win, one man said, because this is my mortgage payment. Lionizing such behavior, she says, makes little sense. Fiscal irresponsibility is not heroic. I think she's right about that. So there are a number of fruits that come from this. Now, uh, we could go on and on. I, I wish tonight we had a chance to just sit down and talk about all the things that you are more prone to happen to you than winning lotteries and things of that sort. You know, uh, there, there are some really profound statistics. You have, a, you have a better chance of being struck seven times in a row by lightning than winning the lottery, and yet people still play the lottery. Uh, the odds of you receiving ovarian or prostate cancer are far greater than winning the lottery. There's just so many things that could happen to you. You have a better chance of taking a, a face coin and flipping it, and, and I think the statistic is you have a better chance of that uh, landing on heads 27 times in a row than winning the lottery and someone says man that's impossible that's the point uh, statistically uh, it is uh, I, I think someone added up e even with the lottery if you went and bought every possible number combination to ensure you won the lottery you'd end up spilling, uh, spending about 10 million dollars more than the actual lottery is worth to be able to afford it it's just statistically impossible to win that so what do we do uh, obviously what I wanted to do tonight is give you principles that legislate how we approach this issue uh, so you say, okay, I'm a gambler. I know somebody who gambles. How do we change that? First of all, you've got to change your priorities. Money cannot be the nexus of your universe. It cannot be. Our priority must be God, and we must see our possessions as belonging to God and that we are merely the managers of what He gives us. If you would not want someone risking your money, 
then don't risk God's money because it really belongs to Him. Uh, number two, check your peers. Uh, often people get involved in gambling because of the people with whom they associate. Uh, have you ever known somebody to say, well, some of my friends are going to Vegas and I'll think that I'll go with them. And they come back and a few months later you find out they're gambling addicts because they were in the place where they shouldn't have been. If your friends gamble, while you still need to try to influence your friends, that may not be the best to be around them while they're doing that because they're going to influence you in a negative way. So make sure your friends are good uh, influences upon you. Uh, be satisfied with provisions of life. Uh, I, I think Paul really answers the issue. Paul said, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Whether I have a lot or nothing, I'm satisfied. And that has to be where we stand as well. And that's why Paul said, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. That's in the context of that statement. Whether I have everything or I have nothing, as long as Christ is with me, that's all that matters. I'm not concerned about having uh, $10 billion. And um, it's easy to chase rabbits on a subject like this. But I hear people say quite often, Boy, if I won the lottery, I'd do a lot of work for the Lord. Well, why aren't you doing it now? There's so much you can do for the Lord now. And, um, you know, I think one of the most profound quotes I read uh, some years ago was a man who said, a man who would not willingly give $5 of his own money to support whatever charity he's interested in is not going to give that same $5 once he wins the lottery. That's just a, a sham argument. It doesn't really work. If we're interested in good works, we'll do them now. Uh, also, prayer and study. Uh, listen, I am not suggesting at all that somebody that's involved in gambling can sometimes quit like that. It's like a, a chemical addiction. They're really, you know, the, the, the elements of the brain that kick in and provide euphoria are the same and as strong for this as they are for sometimes other chemical addictions. So it takes prayer and study to overcome this, but you can, and you can do it with God's help through prayer and study. And then prevention is better than the cure. Never bet the first dollar, never pull the first arm on a slot machine, if you don't do it, you'll never be addicted to it. Just like if you never take the first drink, you'll never be an alcoholic. If you never engage in premarital sex, you'll never have to worry about an, a sexually transmitted disease or any of those other consequences. Don't start and it won't be a problem. So what we've done tonight is offer you this and so you can say, okay, now I've got some principles and now when I'm dealing with situations, whether or not that's gambling, you can take these principles and apply it. You know where God stands. You know what gambling is, you know the basis of it, you know what it involves, and you start applying it, you can say, aha, I don't need to do that because that would be risking God's money in an artificially created risk, or that's a legitimate means of earning, and I can do that, and that's the real reason we approached it this way tonight. More than anything, it's very likely that uh, people here tonight probably aren't gamblers. I'm just assuming that. But you know people that are. You know people that do. Take these principles and help them. And maybe we can do like they were said to do in Acts 17. Maybe we can start turning the world right side up if we start implementing ethical principles that the Bible teaches. And so I hope this has been of service and benefit to you tonight. Uh, again, it's a lot of information to cover, but, uh, but I think it's been beneficial just to go over something that we don't discuss that often. But uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. David, we appreciate the great lesson. We knew it would be uh, very thorough, very well researched, and very well presented, and indeed it was. Very, very helpful and uh, great principles that we need to apply to a subject that uh, is very, very important and a practice that is all too prevalent uh, in our society today. We're deeply grateful, David. Appreciate this lesson very, very much. Uh, if there's nothing else, we will uh, stand, and Brother Ted Truitt, as our closing prayer, we'll be dismissed.